Some of you may remember that song. It was actually on the album that we put out a few years ago. But it captures the love of Jesus for us, which is something that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Last week, Zach preached on Revelation chapter 1, and uh, as we were talking about that passage last week, uh, I realized that it would be good for us to spend some time uh, just in a short series in these seven letters, these letters to the seven churches here at the beginning of Revelation. So we're not, we're not going to do the whole book of Revelation, though I know some of you would love for us to do that, and maybe at some point in the future. Uh, But as we finished our series in the book of Acts and we looked at the beginning of the early church, I I wanted to fast forward to the end of the first century around 95 AD uh, and check in and see how the church is doing. And so we're going to do that through means of these seven letters. Revelation itself is actually a letter written to these churches. Uh, And Jesus begins by addressing these seven churches. Now, before, uh, as we embark on this little mini series, I want to talk about wh- why we're doing this. Um, and the first thing I want to say is we are we are not doing this because a Democrat has been elected president. Okay, um, I noticed this back during uh, President Obama's uh, term uh, that among uh, conservative churches there. Uh, is this desire whenever you see a rash of uh, you see a rash of sermons on the end of time and how to live in the end of time when uh, the people uh, maybe that conservatives don't like are in power uh, and for instance so those uh, those books like first Peter for instance instance mentions that we are strangers and exiles and so this morning if you're a Christian I want to tell you up front uh, we are not looking at revelation out of a sense of panic that when the Bible says that we are strangers and exiles, that is true, whether a Republican holds office or a Democrat holds office, right? Uh, that the election of Joe Biden to president has not hastened the end of time. That is firmly in God's hand. Uh, Jesus will return precisely when he means to, and not a moment before and not a moment after, So who is in office does not determine the course of time. God determines that, nor should it determine uh, necessarily our emotional state. Now, that said, um, Christians are under social and cultural and political pressure. That is true. Um, And we tend to feel that more right now. Um, But it's also true because it's always been true. Jesus said that it would be true uh, in his earthly ministry. He reminded his apostles that this was going to be the case. We saw that to be the case as we made our way through the book of Acts, that Jesus's people, precisely because they belong to Jesus and belong to a different kingdom, will always be under pressure. Now, we may feel that more acutely at certain times, But we need to remind ourselves, A, that we're not the focal point of history, right? We're not, as my friend Ryan used to tell me often, uh, when I, you know, felt like a failure and felt like I'd messed up, he would say, Kevin, you're just not that important, okay? So we need to remember that. We also need to remember that our brothers and sisters around the world have been feeling more intense pressure 
at different times and in different ways. So as kingdoms rise and fall, uh, God's people within those kingdoms will feel uh, certain degrees of varying pressure. And sometimes it's going to be outright hostile and sometimes it's not. That's why we're going to look at these letters. We Here we have seven letters to churches that are under pressure. Here at the end of the first century, uh, the Roman emperor is a man named Domitian. Uh, and he is uh, pursuing a course of persecution against Christians. And we're going to see how these different churches respond. But I also want you to notice that when we read this, it says, uh, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that just because we're going to read the, the letter addressed to the church in Ephesus does not mean that we cannot learn from the church in Ephesus. Right? We're reading their mail. Uh, but their mail has things to say to us as well. This is Jesus speaking to his church under pressure. So let's, uh, let's give our attention to God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Your toil. And your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my namesake. Somebody else is reading. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, our God and our King, Lord, we pray that you would take your word and that you would renew us and transform us by it. Lord, would you give us ears to hear this morning? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I say the word, the words report cards, what are the first emotions that uh, come to mind uh, when I say report cards? For my younger homeschool friends, if you don't know what a report card is, um, right? This is what uh, this is what teachers would send home to your parents to let them know how you were doing in class, how you were doing in school, were you passing or not passing? Uh, and usually, they would also include some other helpful nuggets of information for your parents to know. 
Things like uh, Fred won't stop talking in class, right? Little, so, so not only was your academic performance being evaluated, but also your performance in life, right? And your parents would get this little report, um, and then you know, that, would, that would basically tell them what needed to change, if anything needed to change, before it was too late, right? Before those grades became final, well, uh, you could view these seven letters, this here, this early part of Revelation, as report cards. They all kind of have the same structure. Jesus identifies himself, and then he tells that local church what he knows to be true, what he knows is going on. And something, um, it depends on the church, but something good or something bad, and then tells them what they need to do about it. Uh, in order to correct it. And the first church that we hear about is Ephesus. Uh, And his report card for Ephesus basically says this, you're doing well in truth, but you are failing in love. You are doing well in truth, but you are failing in love. So Ephesus gets a mixed report. And what we're going to see today is that truth is necessary. It is necessary that we stand for truth. It is necessary that the truth of God's word be our standard, be what informs how we think and feel and act. So truth is necessary, but it must be joined by love. To put it negatively, truth without love will kill a church. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Ephesus. So first, we're going to dive in and we're going to see that we must work for truth. But second, we also need to see that we don't need to abandon love. And then third, if we have lost our love, how do we recover it? So first, we work for truth. Look again at verse 2. And remember that as Jesus identifies himself, um, in each one of these letters, Jesus draws an image from the vision that we looked at last week. And in this particular case, he identifies himself as the one who walks in the midst of his churches, the seven lampstands, but he also holds the seven stars who are the seven angels of the churches. Now, uh, interpreters are not 100% sure what is meant by the angel of the church Uh, The word angel means messenger. And so are we talking about the pastor of the seven churches? Is he like the the message is given to him and he is is to give it to the congregation? That seems very likely. Of course, it could also mean a supernatural being that's in charge of each church, though it seems strange that Jesus would direct uh, these comments to a supernatural being instead of the church themselves. But How they're directed isn't really important. We see that the message is for the church. And what he tells, the way that he praises the people in Ephesus is he says, right, that I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So they are working hard. They're toiling. They are patiently enduring They are under intense pressure, but they are not giving up, right? They are bearing up, in verse 3, for my namesake. Jesus says, you have not grown weary. 
They are still in the fight. They have not retreated. They have not succumbed. What is the fight that they are facing? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 2, it's a fight for truth. He says that they have identified false teachers, people who are teaching a false gospel, something, it is not, something that's not true. They've identified them as false apostles, false teachers, and they have marked them as deceptive. And if they were with, So if they were inside the church, they have kicked them out of the church. So they are standing for truth. A little bit later on in verse 6, He mentions a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know exactly who this is. We have no record of these people short of the the pages of Revelation. And we're going to meet them a little bit later on because they were troubling some other churches. Uh, But it looks like they were advocating, encouraging immorality and idolatry. Okay? And so the, the, the Ephesian believers have been valiant for truth. Uh, they, they are praised, as one commentator says, they are praised for their intolerance of evil. They will not tolerate evil people. Right? They've purged the false teachers from their midst. Uh, they, are, they, are, they are keeping the, um, the Nicolaitans at bay. They hate their works. I want, I want to notice and point out that Jesus says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans themselves. All right? But they hate their works. And Jesus says, I hate them also. And that tells us that um, there is, that when we stand for truth, that does mean that we will hate certain things, that we will be opposed to certain things. It even tells us that Jesus is opposed to certain things. That, that That when Jesus' truth is concerned, where God's truth is concerned, it means we will oppose things that are opposed to that truth. And that's important for us to hear in a culture where truth is relative, uh, where the, 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 the moving target of, what is ex- the, the target of what is acceptable is always moving and sliding, right? And, and really what's happened is uh, you can decide your own truth. You get to determine what's good for you, what's true for you. And what we're finding is that is a, that is a bottomless pit, uh, that, that that leads to a moral freefall and to a cultural freefall. So in the midst of that kind of freefall, Jesus' people are called to work for truth, to know the truth, to understand the truth, to apply the truth. That's the kind of pressure that they're under. It's the kind of pressure that we're under. And you can understand, what, 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 what would this look like for the Ephesians? Uh, we know that in Ephesus, we talked about this when we were going through Acts, uh, Ephesus was home to the great temple of Artemis. Uh, it, so it was, a, it was a hub for idolatry, uh, for pagan religion, for witchcraft. All kinds, of, all kinds of religion could be found and all kinds of immorality could be found in Ephesus. But it was also home uh, in around this time uh, to the imperial temple. Uh, we call it the cult of Rome. That basically the Roman emperors had gotten to the point where they also built temples to themselves and where people were to worship Rome. And so if you were a good citizen, if you were going to be a Roman patriot, it was your duty to affirm that Caesar is Lord or Caesar is King. 
If you're going to be accepted in society and affirmed in society, you had to affirm that Caesar is Lord. But Christians can't do that. You see, Caesar doesn't care if you worship Artemis. And Artemis doesn't care if you worship Caesar. And so those kind of get along, right? But there's this funny thing about Christianity that when it says Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is Lord alone. That no one else is Lord. And so Christians began running into trouble because they could not affirm. They could not say Caesar is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And so Jesus' followers then find themselves under pressure both from the right and the left. From society and the government. To be normal. To conform. To fit in. But they couldn't. And at least in Ephesus, they refused. What does that tell us? One, we must know the truth. We must work for the truth. And we must endure in the truth. Right? So first, we have to to acknowledge that there is such a thing as truth and lie. There is such a thing as good and evil. Morality is not a sliding scale. God, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, he has ordained what is good. He has ordained what is true and right. And when we follow that path, it actually leads to human flourishing. Uh, Contrary to what we often hear, uh, to work in the path of what is true actually leads to health, leads to life. And so we we don't need to be ashamed of the truth. We don't need to be afraid of enduring in the truth. But we also need to know that if we endure for the truth, it will cost us. Right? Everybody wants to belong. Uh, My roommate and I in college uh, would often, uh, on our way to our apartment, we would drive by a coffee shop called the Crimson Cafe. Um, and, and it was always kind of ironic to us that there was a, we, we called them the nonconformist, um, but they all looked like each other, right? As they played hacky sack in a circle outside of the coffee shop, all the nonconformists conformed to each other, right? Everybody wants to belong to something. So that pressure is real. And we have to acknowledge that when we stand for the truth, it will cost us in conformity. We will not be normal. We will not fit in. And that's true for the right and the left. The pressure comes from both sides. But we also need to see here that enduring for truth pleases Jesus. That Jesus commends these people for their work, their toil for the truth. Enduring for truth pleases Jesus. Now, that's not the end of the report card. Jesus gives them an A in truth But he gives them an F in love. Look at verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The love you had at first. What what does Jesus mean by love? Uh, He's not really super clear. Does he mean love for God? So, I have uh, abandoned my original love for God. I've forgotten that love. Or does he mean love for others? Uh, we talking the vertical or the horizontal? And I think the answer is yes. 
the reason I think the answer is yes, and, and commentators kind of go both directions, but I think the answer is yes because the answer was yes for Jesus. Zach read that passage for us earlier from Matthew 22, all right? Um, when, when this lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks, what is the commandment? And I, I love Jesus, right? And I, I understand the lawyer, right? He, Jesus, I want you to boil it all down for me. Of all 600-something commands in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, give me the one. What's the, what's the most important one that if I'm going to check any boxes, what's, what's the one commandment? And Jesus says, I'll give you two. So frustrating, right? Uh, and, and what does he say? Love the Lord your God with everything that you are and everything that you have. And love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. Right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these commands hang all the law and the prophets. So everything that the Old Testament scriptures have to say about how you are to live, Jesus says, flow out of love. Love for God and love for others. Vertical love for God flows out in horizontal love to others. And so as we heard earlier, to not have one is to also lack the other. One is the evidence of the other. And then he says, he says the love you had at first. Now, you may remember uh, the early days of love, right? The honeymoon phase. How many... Hours, how many dollars, how many miles have been burned up on the early days of love, right? You remember first love when the presence of that special someone was all you could think about? You couldn't wait to get off work or get out of school and pick up the phone. We used to do that and call people, like hear their voices. really weird. Um, thankfully, now you can just send them text messages. Um, but right then maybe over time things become stagnant and dull. I mean, you're committed. You're in it all the way to the end, but you're really more at a, a simmer, more than a boil. Love has grown cold. And that seems to be the case here. Their, the, the heat of their early love for Jesus has diminished, has gone down, has grown cold. They've lost their enthusiasm. And so as Simon Kistemacher says, they are now just custodians of the faith rather than propagators of it. Uh, the mission has become a museum. Their love has grown cold. How, how big a deal is that? How important is it that we have love? Love for God and love for others. Well, look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 5. He says, unless you repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. Now remember, the lampstand, is it stands, that's, that's the symbol for the church. A lampstand doesn't create its own light, it bears light. Jesus is the light, and the church bears the light of Jesus. And so what Jesus is telling this church is, if you don't start acting like a lampstand, I'm going to take it away. 
If your love does not return, if you don't turn back to me, if you don't rekindle that affection, if you don't start telling other people about me, you will cease to exist as a church. So I'd say that's a pretty big deal. And in fact, that proved to be the case. Uh, The church at Ephesus is now a pile of rubble um, for tourist attraction. Friends, this is so important for us to hear. Doctrinal purity is good. Doctrinal purity is necessary. But doctrinal purity without love will kill a church. We can stand for truth and yet fail to love God and we will cease to exist. Christians have eternal security. Churches do not. There are no such things there's no such thing as a, as a second-generation Christian, right? Every, right, there, there are second-generation Muslims, there are second-generation Hindus, right? You can be born into any kind of faith, but in order to be in Christianity, in order to be in Christ, you must be born again. That does not happen automatically. And so we cannot forget our first love. It's possible to love truth and not love God, and that is a dangerous place to be. And that's why Jesus warns this church. So how do we recover? If we have lost our first love, how do we recover that? What does Jesus say? And you know this, if you're, if you're married or have been married, you know that the fires of love have to be stoked, Right? That they have to be encouraged. The, 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 the fire doesn't keep burning all on its own. You have to fan the flame. And Jesus acknowledged that that has to, that's the, that has to happen for churches as well. Look at verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So the first step in rekindling lost love and recovering lost love is to remember. Remember from where you have fallen, right? Decline can happen slowly over time. It's why, for instance, um, usually you see some marital strife around year seven, called the seven-year itch. But also later on, uh, when children have grown up and left the home, all of a sudden, parents who had all their attention focused on their children, once their children are gone, they turn and they look at each other like strangers, because all their attention has been focused on their kids and not on each other. Right? Decline can happen over time without you even realizing it. And so Jesus says the first thing is remember from where you've fallen. Remember what it was like in the early days. And if this is the second or third generation, he's saying remember your history. Remember how your parents and grandparents uh, loved and followed the Lord. Look backwards at them. See what the Lord did in those early days. Remember. And then he says, repent. He says, turn. Change your mind. Change your way of life. Come back. Remember and repent. And then he says, and do the works you did at first. Uh, 
He doesn't say, feel your first feelings. He says, do your first works. As DC, DC Talk says, love is a verb that our affections are demonstrated by our actions. And so Jesus says, do the works you did at first. Do the works that went along with your first love. Right? Our actions, uh, we, we spend the most and we sacrifice the most on what we most hold dear. So what do your time and your money say about what you love? What are you, what are you loving the most right now? I think that's what question, one diagnostic we need to ask ourselves is what am I loving? What do I love? How do my works demonstrate that? And I may need to repent. I may need to turn. I may need to remember that honeymoon period when the love was hot and ask the Holy Spirit to rekindle that again and do those works. Prayer, evangelism. We also need to know this, that if we do the work of love, it too is costly. In, right, love, love for others. One, well, love is, love is an investment. And so when I love God, it means I'm investing in time in a relationship with God. I'm seeking to hear from him. I'm seeking to know him. Right? And if I'm loving others, it means I'm investing in others, investing in real people. Now, you can invest in a relationship with God, uh, and you won't be disappointed. You, might, you will experience some trial in the midst of that, but I can guarantee that if you continue to pedal the bike in that direction, you won't be disappointed. However, when you invest in other people, I can almost guarantee you will be disappointed. Because other people have this nasty habit of letting you down, Right? Other people have this nasty habit of not reciprocating the love that you show them. How unkind. Right? Because you know what? They're sinners just like you are. But, but Jesus doesn't tell us to love our neighbors as much as they repay the favor. Jesus says, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And when we, and when we are pursuing a love for God... That will flow outward in love for neighbor. So be ready for the cost. Now, love for God will cost you as well. And we talked about that under the truth section. What is the reward? We saw the consequences that if they don't, if they don't return to their first love, they will cease to exist as a church. But what is the reward? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Spirit speaks for Jesus, and this is not just a message to Ephesus at the end of the first century, it's a message to Grace Fellowship at the beginning of the 21st. And he says this to the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where else do we see the tree of life? What is the tree of life? Well, you see it at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. It was one of the trees to which our first parents had access. And then when they rebelled against God, 
It was the tree to which God barred them access. He removed them from the garden so that they would not continue to live eternally in a fallen state. He bars them from the tree of life. But right here, Jesus says that we can get back. That we can be allowed back into that garden paradise and allowed back to the tree of life. How? Well, in the biblical story, in order to get to the tree of life, someone has to go through the tree of death. Someone has to hang on a tree and be cursed. And that person is Jesus. Jesus hangs on the tree of death. Jesus is cursed on the cross so that you and I can have access to the tree of life. Kevin, how do I know love? How, how, can, I, how can I come? How can I love God more? Well, friend, actually, first it begins by knowing God's love for you. You cannot love God first. You must first know his love for you, just as we read in 1 John 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friend, if you would know what love is, you must know the love of Jesus. You must come to him and be saved. Amen.